So praise God, today uh, we are talking about sex. You might think, wait a minute, I, I don't think we're supposed to talk about this in church. Did Brian run this by the Pope? Like, what's going on? I don't think this is how it's supposed to go. But we are talking about sex. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about sex. There's a whole book in the Bible kind of about it. So it's it's interesting. Song of Solomon, by the way, if you want to check that out later. Uh, creepers. <laughs> I don't know, guys. But, uh, but the good news is that uh, we serve a God who's a good God, and, and maybe you've got a perception of him, and chances are uh, that that perception might be all wrong regarding how God feels about sex and what his attitude is. Uh, let's see. Now, if you're interested in a Bible, it's our, our free gift to you. Just raise your hand, and, and uh, Denise or Brendan will gladly give you one. You can take that home, and you can try to follow along today, but, but good luck. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to be cruising through some verses here. But, uh, but yeah, so we... Worship the God who created sex. All right, God is the one that came up with the idea. He thought it was a great idea. He, he invented sex. God is the one, that, God's the one that made sex pleasurable. Whoa, yeah, God did that. Uh, so, so he's a good God. I don't know if you realize that. Like, you can give him a high five. You can be excited about that. He's a good God. Uh, so, so let's find out, go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and and after God had made Adam and Eve, this was the first command in the entire Bible, right? So you might think, like, man, the Bible's this book of rules. Man, it's so strict. It restrains my freedoms. Like, this is, this is God's first rule that he established. Uh, verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So, so God is basically saying, like, listen, Adam and Eve, First command, can you guys go along and have sex? I'm looking forward to some grandkids here. Like, that's, that was like his first rule. And, and what's even crazier is, like, he didn't even give them clothes when he made them. He's, like, trying to hurry up the process. Like, here you go, guys. I gave you this garden, your, your privacy. You're all by yourselves. Like, there's no other humans. Just go. Like, this is my command. And, and I'm thinking, like, Adam and Eve must have been like, you know, this is a pretty good religion. Like, God just made us. Like, I could get behind serving this God. He's... He's a pretty good guy. I mean, I could pray to this guy every day. I don't see the problem. This is something I could do, right? He seems like a pretty great guy. So, so God's first command was for the husband and wife to have sex. All right, that's, that's pretty awesome, God. And uh, so we, we don't just worship God because he's, he's the creator, which is awesome. We worship him, right, because he's a redeemer. He's the savior, right? He forgives us of all of our sin, but we also worship God. One of the aspects about him as creator is that he invented sex, right? So that's, that's pretty cool. And if you keep reading, you'll actually also find out he's the God that invented the day off. So I don't know, like this, this God is awesome. Like I'm excited about, about serving God. I don't know about you guys, but, uh, but, but God is, is not like any other, other gods that you might think of. Because there's, there's been gods of sex before in, in all sorts of different cultures. The Bible even addresses some of them. Uh, Paul encounters some of them as he's, he's evangelizing the world about Jesus, right? He, he encounters some of these cultures. And, and some of them, the, these gods of sex, they would have these temples and they would have these, uh, you know, lewd behaviors taking place in them. There would be temple prostitutes. It was kind of a, a culture of abuse. It wasn't it wasn't a good situation. In the Old Testament, there was this, this God called Molech, who was this God of, of fire, all right? And the interesting thing about Molech is that, and it's somewhat disturbing and barbaric, 
But the people, after they would have sex and conceive and they'd give birth to their firstborn child, they would then offer that child alive, burn it alive on an altar to their god Molech, right? And that's pretty brutal stuff, right? I mean, that's awful. Terrible, terrible stuff. And, and they did this and kind of did it as like a worship of, of sex. Like they would do it from the beginning, planning on doing this to their child. And, and I know that sounds really barbaric, but if you think about it, modern culture isn't that much different. Because we also, in our culture, worship sex, right? It seems to be kind of the predominant idol that, that America chooses, uh, and a lot of cultures choose, right? We worship sex, we worship pleasure, we are all about worshiping ourselves and, and selfishness and, and all sorts of things. And if you think about it, even that barbaric activity is kind of something that our culture also participates in, where in order to have the freedom that we want to worship sex, when someone gets pregnant, we're willing to kill the innocent child for the sake of us having sex without any consequences, so to speak. So that culture is not too much more barbaric than, than we already are. But the point is that, that God is a good God and made sex as a good thing. All right, So he's not like these pagan gods that you've heard of. Right? And, and God designed sex for marriage. Right? It was for the husband and the wife. He designed it to be in a safe and committed relationship, a, a relationship that in reality is, is centered on him. All right? so, so that's what God intends for sex, for it to take place in the context of marriage. The way our culture portrays sex is that it's all about lust. Right? It's all about selfishness. And in reality, our culture kind of despises children in that situation, right? Where people want to just be able to go have sex and not think about, you know, kids popping out as a result of it. The way God designed sex and desires it to be is that it would be in, in a situation, a context of love. That it would be in a selfless relationship where each person is giving out of love towards the other, that they're not just self-seeking. And God loves children. And that's the context that he wants sex to be in. And in fact, uh, one of the goals that God had in mind when he designed sex was for there to be children. In Malachi chapter 2, the last book of the Old Testament, we just read from Genesis the first. Might as well skip on down there to the end. Uh, Malachi says this, uh, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So God desires sex to be in the context of a marriage, all right, where you have two people that are seeking God and serving one another, and that when a child comes about, that that child then grows up in a household where both people are committed to raising that child, and that they can introduce that child to the loving God that made them, right? So that's, that's God's desire. He wants to see Children, And that's why sex is for marriage. Sex is designed for a, a committed relationship, right? So if you're in a situation where you're, you know, having sex with someone that you don't plan on having a baby with or don't plan on raising that baby with, that's not God's best for you. That's not what God has designed it for. Now, now the good news is, because you might be thinking, like, wait a minute, does the Bible say we can only have sex if we're making babies, like, is it just for procreation? Are those the rules? And the good news is no, that God didn't design sex just for procreation, but also for recreation, right? So it's, it's supposed to be a, an enjoyable activity for the husband and wife. And here we go. Guys, this is going to be the memory verse 
This is the first verse of the Bible you're going to want to memorize. You can write it down on a little yellow post-it. You know, stick it like on your, your night table or on your steering wheel. Here we go. Proverbs 5.18 through 19, it says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Wow. Uh-oh. Man. So, uh, so that, that's some good Bible there. I mean, like, God inspired this, by the way. Uh, he's a good God. Uh, and, and what I want to point out is that, right, be satisfied always with the breasts of the wife of your youth. Uh, God didn't just design those in some utilitarian sense of, like, I'm going to create a ketchup bottle that feeds babies, right? Like, he designed them artfully and in a way that they could be enjoyed between a husband and and a wife, right? So that's, that's what he did. And not only did he do that in that context, but the, the entire concept of sex is designed to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. Notice that the verse said that a husband is to be intoxicated always with his wife's love, right? Intoxicated means like if you're out drinking, you weren't thinking about your limits, right? Like you were just like, you know, pouring them back, right? And that's what he's saying in terms of loving your wife, that uh, you shouldn't be concerned about those limits, that just, you know, keep, keep enjoying it. God's happy about us enjoying uh, our marriage. So there's, there's not a limit. You can't get drunk off of your wife in that way. There's no limit. You don't have to worry. It's good stuff. So, uh, so he, God, designed both the male and the female uh, to experience enjoyment. All right, God designed the chemical and the receptors in our brains that give us the pleasure of, of anything we experience, but also sex. Right? God is the one that like, took the time to craft right, molecular compounds to be like, this will make them feel good, and he did that. Right? So, so he's the one that, that crafted it. Uh, and in fact, some of those very chemicals are designed to make you have a bond with that person. All right, that it, it results in a natural bond to that person. Similar chemicals are released uh, through labor and, and breastfeeding with an infant that the mother ends up feeling a bond with her child. Okay, so those chemicals, there's all sorts of them, and they have the purpose, the intent of, of binding us with our spouse. That's, that's the goal, and God made it that way. So God made sex to be enjoyed, right? It's not a cross you bear for the sake of bearing children, right? Like, all right, here we go. Like, Lord, help me, right? Like, you know, just like, like that's not, <laughs> not the situation that he wants it to be. So let's, let's look back at how God designed it, how, what his intent was and, and how it was put together. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, so first of all, it says that a, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife. That means, old, old King James says, cleave. It means to like cling to your wife, all right? That you two are now drawn together. But one of, one of the things I'd want to point out is that marriage is supposed to be a relationship of utmost priority regarding our earthly relationships, all right, there shouldn't be any, you know, work relationship, no hobby you have. Uh, children aren't even supposed to take precedence over the priority that marriage is supposed to have, 
right? So that's the first thing that God says. And, and in terms of that priority, that is where sex is supposed to occur, right? Hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And now that's not just describing sex, but like I said, you are bonded to that person because of the chemicals in your brain that God designed it that you two start living and acting as, as one, that you are living and making decisions in the interest and in what's best for the other person, right? That you're not just about just you, you're about them uh, even more so. And that's what God wants in marriage. So, so there is oneness in marriage that God desires. And, and notice in this relationship, it said that the, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were naked and unashamed. Marriage is supposed to be a relationship where you are vulnerable with the other person, right? Where you are completely genuine, that there's no uh, hidden secrets, that, that you, you know, share with them uh, your heart, that you are willing to share with them your fears, your concerns, your desires, right? And, and it should be done in a way that there's no shame, that there's no shame, right? So, so don't think that, you know, nakedness with your spouse should be a shameful thing that God abhors. No, God designed it to be that way. So there should be complete trust in a marriage, and there should be, be no judgment, right? So if, if your spouse comes to you and, and shares a vulnerability they have or a fear they have, you shouldn't shame them in that situation, right? Because God wants you to be vulnerable and trusting of one another. Uh, when your spouse is honest with you saying, like, listen, this is a need that I have that I'm sharing with you, you don't shame them because of the needs that God has given them, all right? And, and if your spouse comes to you and needs to confess a sin, if they you know, are repenting to you, uh, you should hopefully offer forgiveness and not shame them for the sins that they have. Now, I mean, obviously there's other concerns there that need to be worked through, but the point is that there should be vulnerability, there should be trust, there should be sensitivity in the area of marriage, and that's how God desires sex to be, that it's in that context of a trusting, committed relationship. So you might be thinking, well, okay, but why are we going to let this old book tell us what is sexually appropriate? I mean, right, some people are just like, I think that there's no absolute truth, it's all relative, I'm just going to do the things I want to do, you can do the things you want to do, we're all going to do our own thing. And the reason why uh, we don't get to call the shots is that, one, we weren't the ones that designed or engineered it in the first place, right? God is the one that created it, and he created it with an intent and for a purpose, right? These chairs were made for sitting in. That's the purpose. You can stand on them, maybe, but also it might, like, collapse on you and mess up. But, but the point is that, that God gets, as the engineer, as the designer, he gets to figure out what the purpose was for it, so he gets to call those shots. Another reason is that God truly loves us, all right? The Bible says that he withholds no good thing from the righteous, Right? So God's not designing boundaries for the sake of right, punishing you or like, withholding good stuff from you or saying, like, I don't want them having any fun. Right? Like, that's not God's interest. He withholds no good thing from us. And so God really cares about us, genuinely. <clears throat> and he designed life for his glory. So life is not designed for us to uh, be on a quest of selfishness, right, where we're just acquiring material possessions and we're, you know, building these situations where we can go through these experiences that make us feel good. That's not what life is about. Life is about 
glorifying God, meeting God, right? Falling in love with Him and experiencing the love that He has for us. Now, another reason why we don't get to call the shots is it's not our body. It's, it's not our body, right? Uh, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, you have still been made in the image of God, right? God has made you. He, he's made everything, right? Psalm says that he owns, I think, a thousand cows on a hill or something like that. He, the gold is his, the silver is his. Everything he's made is his. So, like, we are part of the universe he made. We are his. But even more so, if you are a follower of Jesus, if, if you've been changed from the inside out, if you've been adopted into God's family, it's even more so not our body. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So whether married or unmarried, whatever your situation is, your body is not your own. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's bought you with a price. In fact, in Acts 20, it says that he's, he's purchased his church with his own blood, right? Jesus died that he could redeem us and free us from sin. Uh, so that's, that's what it means when we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And notice that it says that we are a temple. And I know like the, you know, health or exercise industry gets behind this, like my body's a temple, right? Like, but they're taking it out of context. It's a temple for the glory of God, right? That God doesn't choose to, to live in some building that we come to visit on the weekends, right? God chose to live in us, right? That when he forgave us of sins, he chose to come in and dwell inside of us. And his Holy Spirit, he is placed within us. So, so if you have like kind of an older way of thinking like, man, like you don't want to do that in a church, like that's inappropriate behavior, even more so think like you are God's temple. You are God's church. So the things that you wouldn't have thought were appropriate to do in a building, uh, even more so we shouldn't do because we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So we are to glorify God in our bodies, right? Our actions, the things we do, uh, all of our decisions should be be made to, to glorify God. Earl, earlier in this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul quotes a phrase from the culture. The culture in this day, especially in this community, they were a highly sexual community, uh, and they had this phrase that said, hey, food is for the body and, and the body's for food. You know, and they, they just apply it to everything. Like, hey, my body's made for sex and sex is made for me. I'm just going to go around and do whatever I want with whomever. And that's kind of what the culture was like. The, the modern equivalent of that is, right, if it feels good, do it. But that's, that's not what we are intended to do. He says that that's not the case, that, that the body is made for the Lord. And the Lord will one day, right, destroy both the body and food, right? Hopefully we walk into a new body and have an eternal life with that. But, but that we are made for the Lord, so hopefully we're not just living our lives like following whatever little brain receptors we got telling us like, this is fun, let's keep doing this, right? Or, or we make our decisions just based off of what feels good at the time. And the, the danger about that is, is that it's not good for us. It's genuinely not in our best interest. I used to tell my students that if you only ever do what you want to do, you'll end up doing a lot of what you don't want to do, right? Because if you wake up and you're like, I don't feel like going to work today, I'm not going to go to work, right? Uh, do that enough days in a row, you don't have a job. 
and then do that enough days in a row and you don't have food and your options start kind of, you're painting yourself into a corner where your freedoms are actually limited because you aren't, right, you're, you're seeking only the things that you desire in all of those moments. Uh, Paul covers this again in, in Romans 6. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So it's the, the sin that is in us should not be the thing that is telling us how to live our lives. Right? God doesn't want us to be slaves of sin because that's what we are. I know we think like, no, I'm just, I'm doing things my way. Like I'm in charge and that's not the case. Right? The way that addiction works, the way that all sorts of things work, like we become slaves of sin. And we all are. That was our natural state until God came to redeem us. So, so let's see. So first of all, it's not our body. It's God's. Secondly, if you're married, right? So God made your body. He calls the shots. The person he chose to give authority of your body to isn't you. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 7, 4, it says, uh, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, don't get upset, ladies. This keeps going here. Uh, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So God owns your body, and he chose to give, it an author- give the authority of your body to someone else. He gave it to your spouse. That, that means that they are the ones that kind of call some of those shots regarding how we handle our bodies. All right? And I, I know that sounds crazy, but it's, it's a mutual authority that we care for one another. And, and I taught this earlier in this, this uh, series that where there is authority, there's also responsibility. And that's what we see in the rest of 1 Corinthians 7. I'm gonna, we just read verse 4. I'm going to pop it out in both directions. Let's read what this says. Uh, it turns out that your sexual needs are not your responsibility. They are your spouse's. Okay? So here it goes, 1 Corinthians 7. But because of the temptation uh, to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband, all right? So God plans on you having one spouse, not polygamous, right? God plans on you having one partner, not everybody in town, right? So, so that's kind of what he's, he's designed it for, right? And, and he's designed it this way that we wouldn't experience the sexual temptation, right? That's, that's his, his purpose. So verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. All right, so those are marital rights. Those are uh, sexual rights. Those, those needs should be met by the husband and the spouse, right? One to, one to the other. And now it picks up verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And here we go. Here's a command from the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, do not deprive one another. Now, I'm, I know like, you know, churches will get upset about like premarital sex, but God also gets upset when there's no sex in marriage, right? Like God's like, listen, this is, this is a command I have for you. Uh, and then, oh, there's an exception here though. It says, uh, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, it is the responsibility on the husband to meet the needs of the wife. It is the responsibility of the wife to meet the needs of the husband. 
and it is both of their responsibilities that they don't deprive one another. All right? And then when there are times where there's a mutual agreement to take a break, right? Like both of you kind of like nuclear submarine commanders, you're both turning the keys simultaneously, right? Like both of you agree to take a break for a season. You're doing that so that you can pray. You can devote yourself to prayer, right? This is called a fast. And we see this concept elsewhere in the Bible. Typically fasting, you, you give up uh, something that your body needs in, in order to pursue God or pursue his will or direction from him. Uh, typically it's food, right, where people will give up food for a season and, and seek God's direction. Uh, we see uh, Jesus talks about fasting. We see people in the Old Testament fast. Sometimes uh, Daniel, he just fasted meat and he chose to eat vegetables for a while, vegetables and water. Some people fast food altogether. Uh, it sounds like McDonald's, but fat, like you're giving up food, right, for a time. Um, and even in Acts, we saw that the, the church would fast and pray regarding selecting their church leaders when they'd pray over people and kind of establish them as church leaders. So, so fasting is an important thing. It's to be done in combination with prayer. Otherwise, you're just making yourself hungry, and that's not honoring God. So, like, don't just waste your time like, I'm going to be really hungry today. Like, no, like, pray to God, right, while you're doing it. Don't waste your, waste your time. But, but the point is that uh, fasting is always temporary. Uh, fasting is something that doesn't last indefinitely. We saw, uh, you know, Jesus was able to fast for 40 days. I think Moses did the same. Um, but, but my general rule of thumb looking at this would be, uh, don't go without sex longer than you can go without food. Amen. There we go. Amen. There we go. All right. All right. Uh, right. So, so don't go without sex longer than you can go without food, obviously, in the context of marriage. So, uh, I mean, some people, like I said, they can fast 40 days. The longest I fasted food was three days, right? So, like, that, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's my limit. I don't know. Right? So, uh, who knows? But anyways, I just want to point out, it is actually unchristian behavior to not have sex frequently in the context of marriage. That's God's design, God's purpose, and that's why he gave us the need to begin with, was to, to be closer to one another. So, uh, last week we mentioned in terms of communication that uh, going to bed angry or right, letting the sun go down on your wrath uh, gave opportunity to Satan, gave opportunity to the devil to, to kind of give him a threshold that he could walk in on your marriage and have a say. Uh, and likewise here, there's an, another warning for us as believers, because Satan's, he's interested in destroying your life and your marriage. That's what he's interested in doing. Uh, and it turns out, let's see if I can read that. Let's see, scrolling up. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the longer you go without caring for your spouse's needs, the more you are inviting Satan into your marriage where he's going to do what he wants in it. So that's another cause for concern. Now, now we might be thinking, well, okay, well, what if those needs aren't being met, right? What about unmet needs, right? And <coughs> I guess I'll address this. I forgot to say it at the first gathering, but, but if you're a single person, right, or moving towards marriage, uh, God can, like, temporarily put your needs in, like, a hibernation, right? Like a bear where, like, you don't need to eat food for a few months, right? God can do that, and I've, 
He's done it, all right? He's done it. So, like, you don't need to be pursuing that all the time. It doesn't have to be something on your mind all the time. But once you're married and, like, that need is kind of, like, unlocked and you're, like, you have the expectation for that need being met, you've got to make sure it's getting met regularly. But if those needs aren't being met, well, then what do we do? Well, it turns out God's plan A for those needs being met is your spouse, and there is no plan B, none. Okay, there's, there's zero plan B. <clears throat> so what, what you need to do is commit to your spouse and let them know, I am not going to go anywhere else to get these needs met. I'm committed to you. You are the only place I'm going for this. Right? So that's step one. Step two is admit to your spouse the challenge it is to have your needs. Right? So, so you're like, listen, I'm giving you my needs. I'm trusting you with them. And it's hard for me when these aren't met. But I'm not going anywhere else. Right? And that's, that's what we need to do. And even still, if your needs are not being met, we don't have the right to go somewhere else to get them met. All right, that's not glorifying the God. And like I said, there is no plan B, right? So you need to work on your marriage. Uh, typically, when people go elsewhere, uh, the issue is usually lust, all right? Lust is any sexual desire for someone other than your spouse. That would be lust, okay? Uh, Jesus referred to lust. He said, man, he upped the ante here. Matthew 5, he said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So Jesus said, listen, it's not just about, oh, I, but I didn't even kiss him, right? Or I didn't sleep with him. No, 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 no. Like, it's not about that. It's what's going on in your thought life. Because if you're dwelling on these thoughts, he said, you're already guilty before God. Like, he, right? It's a sin before God if you're dwelling on these thoughts. So, so guys, uh, window shopping is not okay. All right, the cumulative group of the opposite sex was not made for us to just, you know, gain visual enjoyment from, right? They're not just for us to be, you know, glancing at all the time. The only person you should be desiring in that way is your spouse, and that's what God intends it for. Now, now for women, uh, lust tends to be different, but not always. Sometimes it's also visual, but, but typically women, uh, you know, they'll, they'll do things instead of, you know, pornography. They'll have things like romance novels and fascination and fantasy with, with different things, or, uh, or you can also have emotional affairs, right? That, that, that honesty, that genuine relationship that God intended between the husband and wife, if you're going elsewhere, if you've got someone at work that you talk to and you're vulnerable with them and you're sharing with them all of your concerns and needs and not going to your spouse with that, that's an emotional affair, right? And that's, that's also of concern, right? That's also going against what God's intent for the marriage is. Now, in terms of, of lust with the eyes, uh, Job, this dude in the Old Testament, he had, his wife was a little bit out there at one point. Job was having a really bad, like, year where just, he lost everything. His kids were dying. All of his finances got screwed up. And his wife, her advice to him in the season was, you know what, Job, honey, just, just curse God to his face and die. Just Right? So she wasn't like an encourager in the midst of, of tribulation. But, but Job still said this uh, regarding his commitment to his wife. In Job 31.1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Right? I've got a contract with my eyes. I've made a promise to myself in how I use my eyes. How then could I gaze at a woman? 
right? So Job had decided he wasn't going to look at other women that way, right, regardless of the situation. Now, now one strategy that this is how I've heard it described is uh, that as guys can use is that if you find your eyes like, like glancing at something that you shouldn't, uh, it's called bouncing the eyes. So just think like, you know, like bounce your eyes somewhere else, like anti-magnetism, just like, you know, find somewhere else to look and don't go back for the second look, all right? So that's, that's what you need to do, just like bounce your eyes, right? And if you find yourself at the beach, right, like you just might be like ping-ponging and just like, you know, wow, look at the sky today. I'm not going to look down because it's a nice sky, though. Like, that's all you can do. That's fine, right? That's, that's what you might need to do. Uh, and don't go back for the second look because it's okay to be tempted. We all have that nature within us. Even Jesus was tempted but yet was without sin, okay? But the temptation, once you dwell on it, it becomes sin, all right? So once you're kind of oogling someone or whatever, that has crossed the line that is now in the area, the realm of sin. And that's something that you probably would need to uh, repent to your spouse about. Another strategy, if you're having issues with your thought life, if you're like, whoa, like, I don't want this thought in my head, like, this ready, psychologically, by the way, this, this has kind of been shown to work, where uh, a physical motion will help you counteract a feeling or a thought, um, where if you have a bad thought going on in your head, you can just, you know, shake it, like, just imagine an etch-a-sketch, like, all right, nope, I don't want that one. Here, I'll start redrawing something different, like I'll think about cars or whatever, uh, right? So just, just, you know, so just etch a sketch your brain out. It's, it's good, right? And so, so, I mean, it's okay if you're, like, walking around and, like, you know, bouncing your eyes around and, like, shaking your head and you get your, like, tweaking out or whatever. I don't know. That, that's fine. Like, God, God's grace will be there. It'll help you get through it. Uh, and, and the solution biblically if you are in a compromising situation where something physical is going to happen, uh, the solution is you, you just run. Like, you just book it. Get out of there. Like, that is the, the biblical solution. It says this in 1 Corinthians six eighteen: Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sec- uh, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul gave the same advice to his uh, disciple Timothy, who was a pastor, right? He said, flee youthful passions or youthful lusts. We see uh, Joseph, this, this dude in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, where he's working for this guy at his household. He's a servant in this household. And his master's wife kind of starts putting the moves on him. And Joseph just like runs. He just gets out of there. He's like, I'm not going to get in trouble for this. And she ends up like snagging his coat and blames him for it again later. But, but the point is, we don't stand and fight this sin, all right? You don't try to be, like, strong in your own strength, like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm going to go hang out here, and I'm good. Like, I'm, I can keep putting myself in these situations. I'm good. Like, no, you, you run. In fact, I've heard a story about Billy Graham, right, this big evangelist guy, you probably know him, where uh, one time they sent a limo to pick him up, and he's, he's walking across the sidewalk, and they open the door, and there were two prostitutes in the limo. And he just, like, runs down the street. Like, literally, like, run, Billy, run! Get out of there, right? Like, because you don't want to be in that situation. One, it's a temptation for you, but also then, as a Christian, like, psh, someone snaps a little picture of that, like, you're, you're done. Like, your ministry is just done. So, so in terms of that, the, the biblical advice is run. So, so, you know, get some exercise going. Like, here we go. We've got this. This is good. So, uh, another... 
area where this temptation uh, occurs is with pornography. And, and in terms of pornography, it's even more prevalent today because of the availability and the access to it. And, and today, it's not a matter of if you see pornography, but when, where the average age where someone sees it is, is 11 years old, right? So it's, it's something that's happening in our culture. And it turns out the same chemicals that are designed to bond you to your spouse will bond you to those images, all right, that you will experience that same bond and it will be hard to break free of that sin. So, in terms of, of this, this is my story. I was partially responsible for sinking my first marriage. Right? I was married to someone before Katie. And, and I, as, as a young teenager, I'd gotten into pornography. I brought that into that relationship. Right? And I was thinking like, you know, I, I was repenting of it. I was going before Jesus and trying to deal with it. And, and I still brought it into that relationship. And I was thinking, no, 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 when I'm married, like, those needs will be met. It won't be a problem. And that's not the case. Statistically, that's not the case. All right? So single people, like, don't think that's going to solve your problem someday. You've got to deal with sin and deal with sin now. So, so yeah, I would fall into this sin every few months. And, and it's something that I'd be repenting before Jesus and and it ended up affecting the, ma- the marriage. And that, for my part, that was my responsibility, the thing that I own for causing that marriage to fall apart. Right? So, so I want to let you know that like, this is a serious, a serious issue. Right? And it's, it's hugely prevalent in our culture. And in terms of, of that, that you can be free from it. All right? And I think that's like something that's almost hard to believe at times, where even like, you know, women will lower their expectations and be like, hey, like this is something guys do, but that doesn't have to be the case. All right, and in fact, it was going through that season of separation and eventually divorce where I was pursuing God that I, I developed enough of a, a hatred for that sin and how it hurt me and hurt others that, that God set me free from it. All right, so, so God is good. Like God will set you free. If he's begun a work in you, he's gonna bring it to the point of completion. All right, so God is in the business of, of restoration and, and building you. So, so if you are a single person that deals with that, you've got to fight it now because you don't want to hurt the person you love the most. You don't want to be bringing this, this slavery, this bondage into that relationship. And if you're married and you struggle with that, you need to, to repent. You should confess it to your spouse and I know that sounds like mind-blowing crazy, like, no, 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 like, I'm, I'm hiding everything from them. Like, no, like, you need to get back to that point where you can just be vulnerable, right, where you can be completely honest with your spouse. And that's what you need to do. And if you need to, you know, get some, some other people in your life to hold you accountable, to pray with you, to encourage you, do that, that's what, if that's what you need to do. And, and even more so if you are a parent, and you struggle with that. It's been shown that parents who struggle with this sin withdraw themselves from their children. That they show less affection to their kids because of this sin. All right? And, and this sin, like many others, like alcoholism or different things, this is a generational sin where, where it will get passed on, where the next generation picks it up and it will get passed on. So, so the way you get a God story in your life is by letting him control your life and you can be the one to start a legacy 
where you are set free from it and you don't have to have that be the story of your lineage. You don't have to have that be the shame of your family that gets passed on. So it's, it's really important. In fact, on the handout, I think we ran out of them, but on the back, we've got, I've got so many resources there and sermons and different things that can help you in this area, all right, so to help you get set free. Let's have the, uh, the worship team come up here. And the last verse I want to talk about is in Hebrews. And we've been talking about faithfulness, right, being faithful to your spouse, right, that God wants you to only go to them for these needs, and that's his intent. And in Hebrews 13, 4, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So the challenge here is, is be faithful. And, and God is he's a just God. All right? He will bring these things into judgment. So whatever sin, if, even if it's just the sin of, of lusting after a woman in your heart, it's a sin that God will bring into judgment, right? And if, if that puts you in kind of a scary spot, like, what, well, what does this mean for me? Like, what does this mean for my hope of eternity? What does this mean? The good news is that Jesus died paying the penalty for all of our sin. So even though God is still a just judge, Jesus took our place. He took the blame. And the Bible says that he exchanges our sin for his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Right? So you can completely be forgiven of any sin. All right? Even if it's not a sexual sin, whatever sin you have, it's something that you can be forgiven of and it's something that God offers freely. And that's what God wants to do for you. So, so during these next couple songs, let God search out your heart. Right, if, if you aren't, right, if you have not yet been forgiven by Jesus, give him the opportunity to do that. Where you say, Lord, forgive me of my sin and, and make him Lord of your life. What that means is he's in charge. Right, you get to call the shots, God, because I mess up my life good enough on my own. Right, I want you to, to take charge of this. So, so do what you guys need to do. Let's, let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are a good God. That, Lord, you designed paradise, the Garden of Eden, that you put these two individuals in it and you gave them everything. You designed sex, you designed marriage, that you intended it all for good. And, Lord, we realize that sin has corrupted that. Our society has continued to corrupt the good things that you've made. So, Lord, I ask that you would restore in us your original intent, your original design. I ask that you would strengthen marriages, that, Lord, you would be the center of them, that, that each spouse would pursue you, God, and that they would be willing to serve each other. I pray for the single people here that, that God, you would be their strength, that you would be their desire and their passion, that they would pursue you, Lord God, with all of their heart, that, Lord, they would make themselves ready if, if they are to be married in the future, that they would make themselves ready for their spouse. And Lord God, I ask that you would just be glorified in everything we do. That Lord, we would use the bodies you've given us to bring you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise.